Welcome to Christ the King this morning. Many of you have had the chance to meet Sam Pasco, who's right behind me. Sam will be preaching for us this morning. I grew up under Sam's preaching in Orange Park, Florida. Sam and his wife, Beth, have relocated to the Northern Virginia, and I always benefited from and enjoyed Sam's preaching. So it's been a real pleasure, a real delight for me to reconnect with Sam and to be able to invite him to share with you, with us from the pulpit. So Sam, thank you for being with us. Thank you, David. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Amen. What a joy it is to be here in this October. Um, we have relocated back to our home. My wife and I both grew up here, and so it's great to be back. Um, in the weeks and months leading up to October 22nd, 1844, literally thousands of people sold or gave away everything that they had, uh, gave away all their clothes, left with one outfit, and waited for what they were sure was going to be the second coming of Jesus. And they were very disappointed on October 23rd when that had not happened. A guy named William Miller had, uh, had created a whole movement that came to be known as the Millerites. And you know them today as the Adventists, and we are very grateful to the many ministries that they have created. Uh, there are many hospitals that are Adventist hospitals. Um, many of you this morning benefited from their commitment to purity by eating Kellogg's cornflakes. Uh, the Kellogg Corporation was created as a result of the Adventist movement, the idea that we need to purify ourselves for the coming of our Lord, and so the idea of creating a grain-based uh, diet uh, was uh, very important to the Kellogg brothers. And so uh, that was one of er many early sort of uh, movements within our history to try to discern when Jesus was going to come back. And that's the topic for today is the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the Millerites called it the great disappointment, but they were not alone. Uh, there have been many times throughout human history uh, when people were convinced that Jesus was going to come right back. The Thessalonians believed that, and in Thessalonians 5, and indeed the entire book of Thessalonians, you can kind of get a sense that they were anticipating the coming of Jesus. And I, I get that myself, because when I first became a follower of Jesus in 1969, uh, we believed very, very firmly, the, the group of Christians that I was involved with, that Jesus' coming was literally right around the corner. Uh, we even had a date fixed for it, which was 1988. And the reason for that is found in the gospel passage this morning, where Jesus is talking about this generation, the generation that sees the flowering of the fig tree, will not pass away until he comes again. Well, what did that mean? Well, the interpretation that we were given uh, was that the flowering of the fig tree was the creation of the state of Israel. After two th almost 2,000 years of non-existence, the state of Israel is recreated in May of 1948. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. You add 40 years to 48, you get 88. And that generation will not pass away. And in 1969, it was very easy to believe that the world was going to end in 1988. 
there was a lot of bad stuff going on in the late 60s and early 70s. There were wars in the Middle East. Uh, there was tension in the United States. George Orwell had written a book that we were required to read in high school called 1984 about how awful the world was going to be in the 1980s. And it seemed far distant. And nuclear war was right on the horizon. I was telling somebody earlier that in the neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, when the houses were built, you literally had a choice. This is in the late 1950s. The builder said, we can either build you a patio or we can build you a bomb shelter. Your choice. Check the box. And many people in my neighborhood checked the I want a bomb shelter box. The, the idea of nuclear war was very much on people's minds. Some of you here may be old enough to remember that kind of apocalyptic hysteria that was going on. A guy named Hal Lindsey had written a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. I see a few nods out there. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever heard the name Ben-Gurion, if you've ever flown to Israel. Ben-Gurion Airport is where you land. He was one of the founders of the nation of Israel. And if you visit his home uh, in, in Israel, they, they have his room, his bedroom set up as like a little museum, just the way it was when he died. It's a step back into time. And if you look next to his bed on his bookstand, that book by Hal Lindsey, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and a Christian apologist is right there next to his bed, the late great planet Earth, because he was reading it. And it's all about how the coming of the nation of Israel and the Bible prophecy and that the Messiah is going to come. And Ben-Gurion was very interested in that. Martin Luther was sure that the coming of Jesus was going to happen in his lifetime and that the Pope was the Antichrist. Um, I remember at the time of the Gulf War back in 2001, a lot of books were written about uh, the configurations in the Middle East and how Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and all of that, and maybe some of you remember that. Most recently, a guy named Harold Camping, who died in 2013, had nailed it down to uh, May 21st, 2011. Then when it didn't happen on May 21st, 2011, he, he, this guy had a huge radio ministry. Maybe some of you listened to him. He, he went back and rearranged it and said, oh, I was wrong. It's October 21st, 2011. Again, it didn't happen then. And he, he stopped his ministry. He said, I was wrong. I, I don't know how I missed it that badly. And he died not too long after that. Kind of of a broken heart because he had staked his entire reputation on nailing down the exact time and date that Jesus was going to come back. Now, some of you who have been a Christian a while may have sort of gotten involved in the whole idea of Bible prophecy, and, and it became very, very popular at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, to try to sort of pin down exactly when this was going to happen, and a whole theology called dispensationalism that developed. And they sort of articulated three main events. There was going to be a rapture when Christians were going to get kind of sucked up into the air. And then there was going to be a tribulation, which is the persecution of Christians. And then there was going to be a thing called the millennium, which was the thousand-year reign of Christ. And you could sort of rearrange these parts. And different people put them in different orders. You know, you were pre-trib, post-mill, pre-mill, post-trib, um, pre-rapture, you know, the rapture was going to occur here. And we would sort of rearrange these pieces in a chronological order to try to figure out what order they were going to happen in. And I had many friends who, for example, they, they, they didn't even think about planning for retirement. They thought, I'm not going to live that long. Jesus is going to come back. Why do I need a pension? 
They, they didn't plan for their kids' college education because they felt very strongly that their kids weren't going to need college because Jesus was going to come back. And may, maybe some of you here who have been around long enough might remember that level of focus on the second coming of Jesus, that it was literally right around the corner. Well, the second coming of Jesus is very, very important. Uh, it's, it's part of the creeds. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that are not in the creeds, either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or even the Athanasian Creed. The, there's, not, there's no mention of the Bible in the creeds. There's no mention of healing in the creeds. There's almost no mention of the Holy Spirit. In the Apostles' Creed, we just sort of say, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's, but there is a mention in the creeds of the second coming. It's very important. And a little, little bit later, we're going to say the creed. And included in that is, he will come again. And then we're also going to reaffirm that in what's called the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is, notice the verb, is risen, not was risen, is risen. Christ will come again. The three tenses, past, present, future. So it's part of our liturgy that we affirm the second coming of Jesus. It's an important part of our faith. And so we balance the certainty that he will come again with the uncertainty of when and how it is going to happen. Because any attempt to fix the chronology of that is doomed to failure. And Paul even says that in the letter to the Thessalonians. He says, now about the times and seasons, I don't need to write you because it's going to come as sea from the night. Well, the, the Greek words there are interesting. The time, the word that's translated time in the first line of the text there in your in your leaflet is the word chronos and it's the word from we get chronology and chronograph and it's sort of measurable time it's the time that you and I are familiar with it's the time we live our lives by it's the time you set your alarm to it's the I've got to be there in 10 minute time it's it's measurable time it's it's sort of linear and we western people we really like that don't we you know we we really live by that uh the second word is the word kairos, which means it's usually translated seasons, although it can mean opportunity. It's, it's where the supernatural intersects the natural. It's where God breaks into chronology. Uh, I, I remember once a, a, um, an usher praying before the service, you know, Lord, let something happen today that's not in the leaflet. Uh, you know, the idea that if God's going to do something, he better darn well do it in 59 minutes and 59 seconds, because that's how much time we've given him, because we have things we need to do here. And uh, that's, that's chronos time. That's where we live, right? There's a clock at the back of the church that I've got my eye on, because we've got things to do, places to go, appointments to keep, miles to go before we sleep. Although some of you are sleeping now, which is fine. Um, <laughs> First time I, one of the first times I preached at the Falls Church, because like David, I worked at the Falls Church. A guy snored. It was, the, it, was a, it was a 7.30 service, and he was just, and his, and his wife elbowed him, you know, and he did the, you know, oh, oh, which made it even more obvious that he was snoring. And, and so it was just, it's one of those little things that happens when you do this for a living. You get used to it. Um, in Acts chapter 1, the, you know, the disciples gather with the Jesus and they, you know, they say, they, they, they want chronos. They say, Lord, when will you be coming back? What will be the sign? And he says, look, I don't know. 
He says, I don't know. It's going to happen. I'm going to come back. But I don't know the exact times and seasons. He says that in Matthew 24. He says, as far as times and seasons, the angels don't know. I don't know. The Father knows. And then he gets taken up into heaven. And to me, one of the funniest lines in Scripture, Scripture doesn't have a lot of funny lines, but one of the funniest is, it says the disciples were looking up into heaven and an angel said, why are you guys standing there looking up into heaven? Which to me is hilarious. It's like, well, did you see that? I mean, he just went up like a rocket. And we don't even know what rockets are. He just sort of went firing up. What do you mean? How, why are we looking at that? And they said, he's going to come back the way that he went. In other words, he's going to come back from the heavens in glory. So we live in this tension that is sort of baked into our DNA of the certainty that time will come to an end. Time is part of creation. Einstein said that. You know, time, we think of time as something that sort of has its own existence. But when God created the universe, he created time. God does not live in time. God lives outside of time. Time is one of his creations. And the idea of trying to put things in order is it's part of what's going to be taken away when we have a new heaven and a new earth. Notice, new heaven. There's going to be a new heaven. It's not the old heaven. Wherever your loved ones are now, that's going to be renewed. And a new earth. And time, the, the, the deletion of time or the recreation of time will be part of that deal. And so we live in that tension between the certainty that it's going to happen and the uncertainty about when it's going to happen. But like I said, it's baked into our spiritual DNA. Joseph Campbell uh, has a thing called the monomyth. Maybe some of you have studied that or read about it. And it's the idea that in many, many cultures, the idea of a, of a hero who goes away and then comes back to, to redeem that which he left, it's part of the human spirit. And I believe it was placed there by God because it is the world in which we live. And you see it, not only Jesus, but Odysseus. You see it in um, Frodo, you know. Uh, he's he's going to come back to the Shire. You see it, you know, MacArthur said it. Even Arnold Schwarzenegger said it, you know, the Terminator. I will be back, you know, that, that, that idea that we're not going to be left that there will come a time when the author will walk on stage and the play is over. And we live in the hope of that, as I will talk about in just a minute. But the one that I want to focus on is, for just a second, the Magnificent Seven, the real one, not even the first one, which was the Seven Samurai, but the Magnificent Seven, the definitive Magnificent Seven, the one with Steve McQueen and Yul Brenner and Horst Buchholz. You know, if you want to watch The Magnificent Seven, and Eli Wallach. And it's the story of how this evil Mexican Eli Wallach, who I think was Jewish, I'm not sure, but anyway, he made a great Mexican, uh, is tormenting this poor Mexican village, and these gunslingers come into town, and they're going to try to clean it up, and then they get chased away. And then they decide, no, we're going to come back and we're going to save those people. And one of the, the last scenes and one of the great scenes in that movie or any movie is when Eli Wallach is there dying and Yul Brenner is standing over him. And Eli Wallach looks at Yul Brenner and says, why would a man like you come back to save people like this? In other words, you're too good to spend your life trying to rescue these worthless people. 
That's the story of our salvation, my friends, that the God of the universe would come back to save somebody like me, that he comes to rescue us. It's baked into our spiritual DNA. It's when Kairos intersects Kronos, and we make a huge mistake if we try to figure out exactly when that's going to happen. Instead of listening for the Kairos moment and waiting for the Kairos moment and watching for the Kairos moment. Now, there will come a time, and we are blessed this morning to have Christian play his trumpet for us. Um, and if you think about it, in the scripture, in, in Thessalonians 4 and in the book of Revelation, it talks about the trumpet sounding. Uh, the trumpet was the loudest noise that a human being could make up until they invented the pipe organ. I don't know. Uh, uh, it, it was, we see it 1500 BC, we see the trumpet being mentioned in scripture. It was a way of calling people to, together. It was a way of announcing what was going on. I took up the trumpet, I put it down again, much to the, much to the delight of my music teacher, by the way. He was very happy to see me give it up because it was painful to him. But I, I took it up because in every Western I ever saw, you knew that the good guys were coming when the bugle sounded. And all of a sudden, it's going to turn out okay. I'm in a story with a happy ending, right? Maybe a couple of hundred people died you know, before the bugle sounded. But when the bugle sounds, the story's going to have a happy ending because the cavalry is coming. Well, folks, we've had cavalry. We're waiting for the cavalry, and the trumpet someday will sound. By the way, it wasn't until 1796, looked it up, Hayden's Trumpet Concerto, was one of the first times that the trumpet actually became a musical instrument and capable of carrying tunes and, and as opposed to something that announced. So we wait for what Luther called that day, and he said, we live this day, there's only two days that count, said Martin Luther, this day and that day. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, but this day, the day that God has given you, the now. Remember I said God lives outside of time? For everything, God is always now. Everything that happens for God is happening now. We live in the now, but we anticipate that day when the Lord will come. And there are two errors that I think we can make about this, and I've alluded to them. They're the same errors that C.S. Lewis talked about that we can make with the devil. One, C.S. Lewis said, is to become obsessed with the devil and to see him under every corner and to blame everything for him. Although I find that very convenient because I find that I have the demon of Pop-Tarts. Um, you'll, not, you'll not find that in scripture, but I have experienced the demon of Pop-Tarts. Um, you know, I pass a Pop-Tart and there's just something going on. I got to grab that Pop-Tart, you know. That was a joke. You can feel free to, you can, you can, I don't, I, I don't think that there's a demon of Pop-Tarts, okay? I wish there were. But one, one error that we make is to become obsessed with the devil. The other is to ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist and just say, well, there is no spiritual warfare. We make the same mistake when it comes to the second coming. One is to become obsessed with it and try to figure out exactly when it's going to happen and look in the paper for signs that Jesus is right around the corner. The other is to forget and to just pretend that history won't have an end, to pretend that Jesus isn't going to come again. And we can have two attitudes. One we're warned about is fear. Oh my gosh, when he comes, you know, 
my friend Tony Campolo used to joke about, you know, he was worried about going to a movie when he was a little kid, that um, he was going to be in the movie and the trumpet would sound and the top would come off of the theater and the Christians were going to be taken up into heaven and he wasn't going to get a chance to see the end of the movie. He was worried about that. That was another joke. I'll, I'll start labeling them. I'll just say joke coming. You know, I'll just put air quotes around my jokes. Uh, you know, the one mistake is to fear it. The other, the other attitude, though, is to rejoice. And when we sing, lo, he comes with clouds descending later on, both of those are in there. Deeply wailing, deeply wailing. You know, it's the idea that, oh, my gosh, it was true. Oh, gee, I need to hide. I need to hide under a rock. Jesus even alludes to that in, in the Gospel of Matthew. The other is to rejoice and say it's true. I am in a story with a happy ending. My Savior, my, my great love has come to claim me. And doesn't he say that in John 14? He says, look, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. Now, if God created the universe in seven days and it's taken him 2,000 years to create a place for us, it's going to be a nice place. It's going to have really nice stuff in it because he's been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years. But he did say, I will come back. And so both chapter 4 and chapter 5, and you don't have chapter 4 in front of you if you have your leaflet, but if you look in the book, I, trust me, it's there. They, um, Paul ends both chapter 4, of course when he wrote it didn't have chapters, he wasn't writing chapter 3, chapter. he was writing a letter, but he's, he ends both of those sections with the words encourage one another, give each other a boost, because we live as strangers in this land, we, this is not our home, and, and Jesus is going to come back, but he hasn't come back yet, and so we live waiting, and so he says in the meantime, your role is to encourage one another. He says it twice. Now, the word there that's translated encourage in Greek is the word paraclete. Now, many of you maybe recognize that word. It's, it's the word that is used of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to send you another paraclete. Sometimes it's translated comforter. Sometimes it's translated advocate. But the idea, it's two Greek words jammed together, which a lot of Greek words are. Para which means alongside, like parallel, and kaleo, which means to call. It's a one who is called alongside as an encourager, as a strengthener. And so Paul says, I want you to be for each other what the Holy Spirit is for you, a paraclete. I want you to walk alongside one another in the midst of this tension between the now and the not yet, between the certainty of his coming and the uncertainty of when. Now, what does that look like? I want to just give you a very small example, and it's intentionally small, and it's an intentionally mundane because I don't want you to think in terms of great leaps of faith. I don't want you to think you need to be a spiritual Mikhail Baryshnikov. Uh, you know, you can be a spiritual, you know, Sam Pasco who can get about one inch off the ground. Uh, we're not talking huge leaps here. We're talking little steps, and. I was, at a, I was at a party, and I don't go to many parties because I'm not a very nice person. People don't like being around me. But there, there were these, um, there was this couple that were sitting by themselves. They didn't know anybody at the party, kind of like I didn't know anybody at the party. I knew the host. And the host came up to me, and she said, you see that couple sitting over there? They don't know anybody here. Why don't you go sit with them and just sort of make them feel welcome? I said, I can do that. You know? And so I did. I, I, I went over, and... I sat down with him and we started talking and, and 
the, the host had sort of said, you know, these are the, some things you have in common. So just sort of connect with them. And we did. We just sat and we sort of started talking. And the next thing you knew, we were laughing and talking. And people kind of came and joined us. And I was able to kind of move back out of that and go sit in a corner like I normally do. But for that moment there, I was a paraclete. The host had invited me, had called me, had asked me to move into a situation to connect with some folks who were maybe feeling a little on the margins. Was it a huge thing? No, it was a small, it was a small, it was a tiny step. And yet it made the difference in that situation. Sometimes the Holy Spirit kind of nudges us. The host, our paraclete, kind of comes alongside of us and kind of whispers in our ear, you see that person over there? Just go alongside him. Remember in the book of Acts where Philip is, you know, the Holy Spirit just says to Philip, see that guy over there? He's reading the book of Isaiah. Just go be with him and you'll figure out what to do next. And so Philip does that. Next thing you know, the guy's become a Christian. He gets baptized a whole nine yards. But the, the, the encouragement from Philip was just go be with him. Just walk alongside him. Be a parakaleo. And that's what I'm going to encourage you to do today. As we wait for this giant trumpet thing to, to happen and the big clouds and the low he comes and the deeply wailing and all of that stuff, to live simply, step by step, day by day, and listen for the still small voice that says, see that person over there? I just want you to put on the helmet of salvation, which Paul says in here, which, think about that, the helmet, of, the helmet is what enables you to stick your neck out, right? You put on your helmet, you can stick your neck out. Paul says, your helmet is salvation. You're going to be okay. You're in a story with a happy ending. He's got you covered. Your salvation is not at stake here. You're going to be all right. So I want you to stick your neck out a little bit, take a little bit of a risk, take a step over, and be a paracleto, be a paraclete for somebody. Encourage one another with the idea that we are part of Kronos. Yes, we live in time. And tomorrow morning your alarm's going to go off and you're going to have to fight traffic and you're going to have to live by the clock and all that. But we also live with Kairos, the idea that God can invade that. And he does invade that. And he does bring us to moments where it connects the vertical connects with the horizontal, and we see, oh, there is something. I live in the natural, but there is a supernatural. God is, he's got me in mind. He had something for me. Uh, there was a song by a guy named Rich Mullins that, uh, he was a marvelous Christian writer, and it fits in with um, the, the, the idea that in the end, we're all just walking each other home. I have that on the wall of my office. In the end, we're all just walking each other home. And isn't that a wonderful way to think about it? You know, we're walking through the woods. It's dark. We're a little scared. We walk with each other. Parakaleo. And, he, and one of the verses in the song says, I think of Abraham and how one star he saw was lit just for me. The idea, remember God's promise. Look up there, all these stars, millions and millions and millions of stars. He says, so will your descendants be. He says, I'm a child of Abraham. And one of those little dots up there, that's me. God had me in mind. I'm, I'm up there. He knew me. He had me all sketched out. You know, how one star he saw was lit just for me. And he was a stranger in the land. And I am that no less than he. That's the next line in the song. I'm a stranger here too. 
And on this road to righteousness, or on this road that I'm following, sometimes the path can be so steep. I may stumble and I may fall, but never beyond your reach. In other words, I can never do anything in my journey toward this, the end of my life where God is not able to reach down and kind of pick me up and say, like Sam Gamgee does to Frodo, and say, it's okay, Master Frodo. We're going we're gonna to get this. We're going to make it. And we need to be that for each other as we wait for the trumpets to sound and the dead to be raised. And so as Anne makes her way to the piano, I want us to end with the chorus to just that song. The idea that we live step by step and that God leads us. He doesn't give us the great he doesn't give us the whole plan. God is not into chronology. He's into Kairos. And he says, I'm going to give you a moment today. I promise you today, this very day, the paraclete, the spirit of God will come to you in a nudge. And he will say, I want you to call that person that you haven't called in a long time. I want you to sidle up to that person you haven't talked to in a long time. I want you to smile at that person in the store that needs a smile. I want you to let somebody in you in traffic. Just one. You don't have to do more than one, you know, when they're trying to get in. And more than that would be, you know, that's cheap grace, okay. Uh, but, um, but I want you to sort of live into the kairos of the moment, and I'll take care of the chronology. I'll take care of the chronos. And you will live step by step because you are in a story with a happy ending. And in the end, we're all just taking these little steps and walking each other home. And isn't, we can do that. You can do that. You're not Mikhail Baryshnikov, neither am I, but you can take a step with somebody while we wait and live in the light of the coming of Jesus. We walk toward him step by step. So I'm going to invite you to stand and then we'll just move straight into the creed in which we will affirm his second coming. So please stand and let's just sing the chorus together. <laughs>